This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by 7-Eleven, Franklin 7-Eleven in the news this week. What's going on at uh, Mary's Little Community? Carson, when he goes into 7-Eleven now, which will be in about three hours. He doesn't need... 44th time today. Yeah, he just fills the arms up and just walks out. You know, doesn't, doesn't need the cash. It's cashless stores now. So they have a couple pilot projects, and uh, they're actually not here. Florida, they're in Texas. But anyway, 7-Eleven is going cashless, joining the cashless rev- revolution. It's kind of odd at a time when state legislatures are intentionally trying to mandate you can't do that. Not in, in Texas, of, buddy. Yeah. No, that not, in the, be, not in the Lone Star State, my friend. That's going to be a huge help. I am in 7-Eleven multiple times, 7-year-old, 5-year-old, after practice, Slurpees. There's just sugary stuff everywhere when the two of them are trying to load their Slurpees up with every single flavor possible. And Look, I'm trying to deflect and hide behind his kids. Carson. I can't say that. I may have had a Slurpee. Too. What's that stain on your shirt right there, Carson? One thing 7-Eleven is doing well, they have done a real good job, uh, at least the ones in around where I am, fresh food. A lot of fresh salads, a lot of fresh fruit, a lot of quote-unquote healthy choices at, uh, at 7-Eleven. doing a good job. Yeah, they're a quick service. Let me tell you something. The powdered donut at 7-Eleven, like the sugary donut. Speaking of healthy foods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I was just following your lead right there. That's my healthy option in the 7-Eleven. Delicious. Often overlooked. You don't think of 7-Eleven, think, hey, that's a donut place. But, man, they have a good sugar donut. So... On that note, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, it was a political week for the ages, the Iowa caucuses, the State of the Union, and an impeachment acquittal all at once. We'll talk about each of them and their impact on 2020. And speaking of the State of the Union, the president used his speech to highlight the issue of federal paid leave, but he also went further than he ever has before on the issue, openly endorsing bipartisan legislation currently before the Senate. We'll talk about that and discuss what might happen next. And it's not like restaurants needed any additional competitive challenges, but here come a couple more, the rapid expansion of rec- recreational marijuana and online sports betting are poised to take a big bite out of the disposable income pie, further tightening an already tough market. We'll kick that around as well. We'll talk about those stories and wrap it up with the legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my Align Public Strategies partners, Franklin Coley and Carson Chandler. And uh, Franklin, not only was the Super Bowl this week, but the political Super Bowl of the State of the Union was this week. Um, and the Super Bowl of the Iowa caucuses. And the yeah. Iowa caucuses. But uh, some, something funny happened all the way to the State of the Union. The uh, President of the United States, uh, who has publicly been talking about paid leave and publicly talking about the need for a federal paid leave policy, uh, not only celebrated the recent budget compromise that gave federal employees paid leave uh, benefits, he openly endorsed the pending piece of legislation in the Senate, the bipartisan piece of legislation that would create some level of a paid leave structure at the federal level. Do you want to opine on Mr. Trump's actions this week? Which you pointed out correctly, I might add. Um, There's a first for everything. You know, he's been talking about paid leave for a while, but this is the first time he's really specifically put his stamp of approval on a piece of legislation. So we have words on a page outlining the position that he has endorsed, and that is notable. And it clearly advances this conversation. 
That being said, it's going to struggle to earn Democrat support. In the current environment in Washington, D.C., I can't imagine anything really is getting done other than both chambers putting forward measures for Election Day with the expectation the other chamber is going to knock them down. So it was interesting when he was talking about paid leave, the Democrats were not clapping. Yeah, which I think is, uh, well, you know, we're in an election year and it's an election time. But, you know, going back even a year ago, I I think the Democrat, they could have supported a bill like this and gotten it through Congress. And that would have been a bipartisan win. And that would have set up some sort of national paid leave framework and policy. And it would have done a lot. It would not have been perfect in the minds of labor advocates and Democrats would have been far from it. This was a, a doable a gettable thing. So, well, I think the other thing that's important is you and I have talked for a long time, and well, we reiterated what economists have always said that the best way, even even left of center economists, have talked about wage increase and benefits that that really to, to to close the inequity gap. That the tax code is the most efficient place to close many of those gaps. Yeah, and, clearly. And the the divide really on paid leave at the end of the day is the Republican proposal, and obviously it's bipartisan, Cinema uh, from Arizona, is leveraging that policy and utilizing the tax code as a way to do this, as opposed to the benefit, wage and benefits side of the ledger. Just so you know, Joe, this week was, uh, we had Earned Income Tax Credit Day, National <laughs> Earned Income Tax Somehow Credit I Day. Somehow I missed that. Yeah, yeah, I think you and... of American missing. But I was in the case, and I celebrated. I love a good earned income tax credit. Okay. But you're right. The tax code is a better place to have this conversation. So I I do – National Review did a piece, and I've got it up in front of me here. I do want to cite a couple things. I have not looked at this poll. I don't know if it's worth anything. But listen, it's coming from National Review and and the opinion writer here. And you got to assume that these are kind of probably conservative estimates, you know, quote-unquote conservative estimates. Essentially what it's finding is 71% agree that we should have some form of paid family leave in the United States, and that, that that's basically on both sides of the aisle. So 60% of both Republican and, and uh, men and women favorites, 65% of self-identified conservatives, uh, 68% of moderates, 83% of liberals. So broad support across you know, the the entire spectrum here. The same survey also found that 64% substantial majority said that paid leave should not be funded by imposing new taxes. Big government programs are always great if you can figure out how to do them without any new taxes. So that kind of gets into the rub of this issue. And that gets into the rub between the Republicans' plan and the Democrats' plan, right? And the Republican plan is kind of pulled down early in Social Security, which that is going to be a higher tax bill probably at some point. But you know, because Social Security is not really solvent in, in its current form, but that is not a tax bill today. That is a tax bill down the road, and therefore that that is something that Republicans feel that they can they can get over the finish line. And but I think right there, that stat is where a lot of the issue here. One final thing I'll say: there's nothing going to happen at the federal level, but this is going to continue to embolden state level action. Obviously, in the blue trifecta states, that's clear, and we have a bunch of Colorados. I was going to mention Colorado, and even they have, they've pumped the brakes, not on paid leave, but again on the how. And the original proposal in Colorado was a basically a, a state-run insurance fund, 
and now they've pumped the brakes and are going to allow, it appears, in private, and we'll talk about it in the scorecard, but they're going to allow private employers to leverage their private insurance funds to do this. So, you know, Democrats, I think, while they have kind of been winning, quote unquote, on this issue, are losing ground. They're, they're ceding the territory because now it's gone from hypothetical Republicans have bought into the to the hypothetical and are really owning the conversation on implementation. I think the Republicans have gained the high ground on implementation, whereas Democrats have had the high ground on the issue itself. And, and it's, it's interesting to watch those those political sand shift. Yeah, I mean, it was last last week we talked about in the scorecard how Washington State, which finally they're one of the first states to pass a paid family leave program, and they just like ten years ago they just last year got around to actually figuring out how to make it work. And they totally screwed it up because the first month here, January, the the whole system has basically been flooded and shut down by the volume. And so they're still working out the kinks. So there may be broad acceptance that this is this is a good policy and we need to do this. There's still a lot of discussion, even in the bluest of blue states on how to get it done. And you can expect this a conversation that's going to continue. I would like to see some uh, Republican, you know, Republican trifecta state looking at trying to do this in a way that works that is not just for state employees. I don't know what that would look like, but certainly there's an appetite out there to to try, and we may see that in Vermont. I think the uh, the governor's putting forward a proposal there. So anyway, stay tuned. Big development this week, and we're going to continue to see developments kind of play out in the in the coming months in this issue. Well, Franklin, uh, this is our first podcast since um, the debacle in Iowa. This is this is basically even for a political guy like me that loves political. This is too much. This week has been just a fire hose of political news. I mean, Iowa alone is like three weeks worth of news. Then we have on top of that the State of the Union. Then we have on top of that impeachment. We got New Hampshire primaries right around the corner now. It's, it is. Nobody's even talking about it. As of this taping, we still haven't figured out Iowa, uh, but we know enough to be somewhat surprised. I was surprised that uh, Mayor Pete did as well as he did. And well, we were we were right that Bernie Sanders and a moderate Democrat were going to be the top two. I just did not think it was going to be Mayor Pete. And now Mayor Pete is, even though Bernie is up in New Hampshire, he seems to be the closest competitor to Bernie in New Hampshire, and if they finish 1-2 in New Hampshire, then out of nowhere, we have a different, we have a Sanders versus Mayor Pete race. Biden Biden is on the ropes. He's almost, if he's not in the top four in New Hampshire, and then you go to South Carolina, he doesn't win South Carolina, his his campaign's probably over. He can't, There's no one else that can win South Carolina, I, I don't think. I think he's the only one that can win South Carolina. Momentum is so important. It's, it is, uh, it is hard to lose the first two states and then come back. So what does this mean to the industry? So what, so tell me, is the restaurant industry on more high alert, less high alert? What does the emergence of this Midwestern mayor mean to the race? Does it mean more, more likely that a Bloomberg jumps into this thing? If, if, I'm, if I'm the manager of Restaurant X in, in State Y, tell me what's different. Let me say one thing before I answer that. Still in New Hampshire, like more than 50% of voters have not decided on a candidate. So this thing is wide open. That's what it was like. That's what it was in Iowa. Iowa and that's, so, you know, this is a very, this is a dynamic process like it is every go around. So, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But to have a moderate, I mean, in my mind, Mayor Pete and uh, Joe Biden and Mike Bloomberg are all in the same lane. And that's kind of the moderate, relatively business-friendly lane. 
And so the more confusion and jumbling there is on that side probably helps Sanders at the end of the day. You know, one of the other things we saw in Iowa is after the, the second realignment, that's where Mayor Pete picked up a lot of support. So Mayor Pete was picking up like Yang supporters and Amy Klobuchar supporters that were realigning. Bernie Sanders was not picking up people in the realignment. My point being is Sanders support is probably somewhat static. He may not be able to get too much higher above 30 or 35 percent of that Democrat mm-hmm. electorate. Whereas yeah. probably if you've got just Biden or Mayor Pete or Bloomberg in the race, they're probably going to be able to get a, a much larger line share and, and probably you know win the nomination. But that's got to happen sooner rather than later. And Bloomberg's strategy is to lose a bunch of races and then make it to Super Tuesday and then perform in the big dollar states. The bottom line is a low answer to your question, Joe. It doesn't really matter if it's Biden, Mayor Pete, or Bloomberg that is victorious through this process, that is the better outcome for the business community. Um, they're Mayor Pete and Biden or Bloomberg are going to have more moderate, which is crazy to think, you know, was Bloomberg was... Or just reflexively, less reflexively ideological. Much yes, more, more pragmatic. Pragmatic. Yeah. pragmatic. yeah, they're not going to, generally speaking, they're probably not going to overturn 30 years of precedent and, and matters. My, 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 my Michael Bloomberg doesn't look at you just because you're an employer and you're now a bad guy, like essentially Bernie does. Exactly right. And so, and I think to some degree, Elizabeth Warren, you know, but so that's where we are is, uh, and I I don't see this thing being over. I mean, Michael Bloomberg is not planning on being over anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So I think we're just in the opening stages. And quite frankly, Iowa election results come in that night and that reshuffles the deck and reshuffles the trajectory. And then usually you have a pretty, pretty good indication you know, if you're looking at the odds, Nate Silver, you know, of 538 wrote this great piece at 3 a.m. after the Iowa caucuses. And he's basically like, Iowa just ruined all the modeling because the winner and how you place in Iowa statistically, that, that really you can get a good sense of who is on track to win the nomination. And because the Iowa results didn't come out that night, they've come out days later, we don't know if Iowa, you're going to get the Iowa balance. Therefore, you don't. So this may have just kind of screwed up the whole nomination process in terms of, you know, Iowa having some level of impact or predictability in the process. Remains to be seen. It may. Uh, clearly, Mayor Pete's gotten a balance in New Hampshire, but um, I don't know. It's just crazy. This I, week is crazy. And I'm wondering if, if Mayor Pete now being, you know, in the at least temporary spotlight, does it bring other issues into the conversation? Does he bring other issues? You know what Bernie's conversation is, right? Bernie's conversation is income inequality, employers are bad, you know, we, we need unions. He has the same message. My personal opinion Pete's going to bring some other issues to that conversation. We may, God forbid, talk about foreign policy. You know, yeah. We may talk about space. You know, We may talk about something other than unions and wages. Yeah. Mayor, I don't think Mayor Pete ran for office to go after corporations. Right. Bernie Sanders definitely has and does. Right. So that, that's, that's the difference. That's the difference as an employer is the business community kind of sizing up these two lanes, if you will. the Let's call it the Mayor Pete lane and the Sanders lane. The Sanders lane doing good right now. I mean, they won, maybe won Iowa, right? Still still a toss-up. We, we don't know, but close. Probably going to win New Hampshire. 
and probably going to springboard from there and overperform in in the other states. I mean, Bernie Sanders is not going to win South Carolina, but that that's going to springboard him into the Super Tuesday states. He has outraised everybody post Iowa. I mean, he is just on a tear. So here we go. Buckle up. So Franklin, on that long list of issues that we have that we pay attention to and think people should be paying attention to and they don't pay attention to, I'm going to put a, a kind of a curveball issue on that list. Is this a Paul Revere segment? It's kind of Paul Revere-ish. Kind of Paul Revere-ish. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about, you know, we talked a lot about cannabis and recreational marijuana and some you know, restaurants are, are paying attention to it. Obviously, there's a significant HR liability aspect to it. Some restaurants want to get into the edibles business, blah, blah, blah. You know, and a little bit of that conversation has been about disposable income, the competition for disposable income. And if people have more access to that market, blah, 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 they might be using, allocating more dollars to that than they would to go to the Olive Garden or McDonald's or whatever it is. And there's another issue that's kind of similarly tracking that I pay a lot of attention to uh, just from a professional, not personal level, mm-hmm. but it's the mm-hmm. it's the the rolling out of online sports betting. And you know, when the courts ruled that states could go ahead and pursue, we had a couple states jump into this last year, three or four, but most of them kind of did a, a kind of a wait and see. Uh, in this legislative session, we got I mean, every day is a new clip about another state looking into how to legalize sports online sports betting. And I, I'm here to tell you, man, it, it, when you when you bet sports, and I may know people in this, but I can't say, but it, it's not like a lotto ticket where you're doing, you know, a dollar here, five dollars there, ten dollars there. You're going through the, the, the process of betting on football or betting on college basketball or whatever it is. You know, you're, you may be getting up to, you know, double, triple digit type bets. And you want to talk about taking a chunk of disposable income out of the out of circulation? I think restaurants would be wise to pay close attention to it. And I know a lot of the cannabis examples, some restaurants are, right, Frank, on Buffalo Wild Wings and a couple of the sports bars? Well, they've been looking at, um, you know, potentially getting into the, the sports betting biz as it's been legalized in certain jurisdictions. I think there was an expectation there was going to be a rush to legalizing sports betting and, you know, wide scale across a, a bunch of these states. And in that first year, there was not the rush that everyone expected. There were a couple states, but there's been a slow but steady drumbeat and in, in, of states getting into this. And I mean, you know, there's and states are figuring these dollars. Least, there's at least a quarter of states in the country now that have legalized sports betting in some way, shape or form. And you only know that's going to grow. You know, and so to your point, Joe, yeah, disposable income, but also butts and seats on Monday night, you know, for football or NCAA tournament or so if you're a sports bar and you're competing and most casual dining chains also have sports zone just above the bar, even though they're not really necessarily marketing in sports bar. You know, if you have a facility open that has sports gambling in it in your area, that is that is serious stout competition. And that will be a highly uh, politicized process in terms of securing those licenses. And, you know, everybody knows this. So going after alcohol licenses, what that process can look like and how uh, competitive and, you know, you may have to lobby up in some instances, but this will be much more intense than that. And there will be winners and losers. And, and states, I was saying earlier, states, states are figuring large dollars into their budgets 
you know, as they're, as they're planning for this. And those dollars are coming from somewhere, and they are coming from the disposable income pile that, uh, that restaurants and that are competing for. So it's going to be interesting to watch that. You know, uh, here in Florida, Franklin, that, you know, we had a long simmering conversation here in the state about casino gaming expansion, and we have them on the some of the tr- tribal compacts and so forth. And one of the biggest arguments the hospitality industry has been against the spread is precisely for that reason, that, that disposable competition for disposable income. And so it's been an interesting issue to watch suddenly kind of, you know, in a very short period of time, get, get a lot of steam. And I don't think, and I'm not advocating that restaurant associations are starting to uh, lobby on this issue, but I think restaurant brands ought to pay real close attention that when some of these big states get online sports betting, the Floridas and uh, the Texases and so forth, where, where we have a lot of restaurants, right now it's playing in up north in some smaller states, but man, this, this, this thing could, could really take a bite out of the industry uh, pretty quickly. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the key legislative and regulatory developments that happened this week. And as always, we start with wages. Franklin, busy week. We're now in, what, the fourth or fifth week of state legislatures. A lot going on in a lot of places. So let's start um, with Ohio. Uh, a little bit of activity on their ballot initiative. Yeah, it's approved by the state ballot board. It's just another step in the process. It was approved by the attorney general last week, and so they will begin collecting signatures. I think they have to collect uh, near near half a million, and it's spread out. I think it's like half of the uh, the jurisdictions or the districts. whatever. They have forty four of the eighty eight. So you have to have some geographic spread, and they have till July one. Um, so that's not that's. It's a that's, big number, but you know, it was, Ohio is a well-organized state. I, I'm sure they're going to. They could probably. They don't get they appear it. to be worried about getting the signatures. Exactly, but it's it is a pretty steep, steep hill to climb. But they, they should be able to get it done. And next door in Pennsylvania, we reported on some minimum wage activity last week. A little different aspect this week. Yeah, the governor is now kind of officially. I mean, he's included in his budget. Um, it's calling for an increase in the state wage, twelve dollars an hour. I think he had talked about like fifteen dollars an hour. Before. Originally, it was fifteen, and they negotiated this thing down like nine or ten last year. He's put twelve in the budget. He's throwing stuff out there. He clearly will come off that number to get a minimum wage increase. And his chip that he's holding over uh, the Republican legislators is this overtime measure that's set to go into effect. My sense is they'll get a deal. It seems silly to me. Well, it's going to, you know, Republicans have to go home and, and run for re-election. So that's obviously the pressure on some Republican members. But clearly the business community is like, come on, guys. We're, we're talking about raising the minimum wage to basically market rate. And for that, we can get rid of this overtime threshold. It's like $82,000, something ridiculous. Yeah. So I suspect a deal will get done. The only thing that's tough there is we got some repubs that are worried about re-elect campaigns. So. Staying in the Northeast, uh, the Ocean State, Rhode Island. You know, I almost went to school in Rhode Island way back when. Wow. RISD? <laughs> it was not RISD. Uh, so Rhode no, Island. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so yeah, Rhode Island, I don't know why Rhode Island can't pass a minimum wage increase, but they've tried at it for three years, four years now, and haven't been able to. So I don't know what to do. Well, with we have it. a hell of a restaurant association up there that's uh, very well regarded in the halls of the Rhode Island legislature. So that's probably reason number one. Yeah. So they're going for a modest increase, fifteen or excuse me, eleven fifty an hour. I don't know. We'll see. I, you would think that this would get over the finish line. I would have thought that a more moderate increase would have gotten over the finish line in, in previous sessions. But um, 
yeah, we will have to uh, we'll have to wait and see how this kind of works through the process. All right, moving down the street to Virginia. This is, uh, again, we've been short session, a lot of minimum wage bills, a lot of action, fast and furious in Virginia, Franklin. Blink your eyes and there'll be a development in Virginia. Uh, these bills are getting chopped up quickly and, and put back together. So I think where things stand right now is we still have a $15 an hour measure by 2025. But One of the bills was, was amended back to, I think, 13, but re-amended in the Senate. And now we're kind of... Now now 15 is kind of back in play, but I think the tip credit, as we speak now, the tip credit issue seems to be off the table and continue the, the tip credit law as is. But it's fast and furious. Like I said, there are multiple bills in the House, multiple bills in the Senate, and um, we shall see what happens there. But but two 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 different pieces of legislation passed their committee stops this week, one in the House and one in the Senate. So fast and furious. And I think their crossover deadline is next week, I think. And so it's it's getting to the point that it may even be this week, actually. But may, the may bottom be, line yeah. is the bottom line is the curtains are beginning to close in Virginia, and it will probably this thing will probably go down to the wire in terms of what the final details look like. So, Franklin, we reported last year on how a couple of cities in Arizona, namely Flagstaff, were increasing their minimum wages above the state, and state passed a law saying, "Well, if you if you're going to do that." You're gonna you're gonna owe us some money for the cost of this in, in terms of employees, state employees, and uh, city you know city employees, and uh, looks like the city of Flagstaff's gonna owe a pretty fat little bill to the state. Yeah, and if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, like there was language in a ballot initiative that passed. It was in the Constitution that basically did not allow the state legislature to preempt, and so this was a creative way to wrap the knuckles of. Uh, of any cities. And so the deal is there's state workers that reside within Flagstaff and now the minimum wage going up now that's a, that's a cost to the state taxpayers. And so that is what they have to pay back. The state minimum wage is 12 bucks an hour and it's tied to inflation. Flagstaff is already at 13. They're going to 1550 in two more years. So they're going to be significantly higher than the, than the state here pretty soon. I mean, I don't know what the annual budget of Flagstaff is. It's probably not impossible. I've actually been to Flagstaff. Been to Flagstaff recently. I've driven through it. $1 million is a lot for any city. You know, but it's it's not going to blow a hole in the budget, but it is not it's nothing to sneeze at either. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how things kind of kind of play out there, and if they react to this and you know slow things down. I doubt it, but uh, anyway, that's also another interesting tactic to look at in other states. Franklin, uh, moving up north to Hayward, California. What happened in Hayward? The city council voted unanimously to expedite an increase in the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour by July for. I mean. It's ridiculous, but so this is what two years is it? Two years ahead of the state? I don't even. I can't remember when the state goes to fifteen, and then to CPI thereafter. So yet again, we have our thousandth California city. It's up by San Francisco. It's up 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 in Northern California, and and many of those jurisdictions have expedited, going faster than the state, and, and and jumped ahead of it, and so. Just another one. Another one adds to the list. So the the the, the, the beat goes on. Franklin, uh, switching to paid leave. We already talked about with the president this week, but uh, some activity that we mentioned in Colorado and in Vermont as well. Yeah, it, and we talked about they're struggling to kind of figure things out and how really just to pay for this stuff. And so the Colorado plan, the bill sponsors announced this week, even though we have yet to see the legislation. They said it's going to change dramatically from from last year. So now we sort of have we have a private insurance option that's going to be incorporated into their paid family leave program. We don't know exactly what that looks like yet, but it may look something like what the Republican governor of Vermont wants to propose um, since he just vetoed 
the state legislatures, the Democrats' paid leave program in that state. By one vote. By one vote, by the hair of his chinny-chin-chin, which, yeah, that's kind of amazing, actually. But he he wants to put forward a voluntary program. And it'd be interesting to see, yet again, we talked about it in the intro, we've got these laboratories of democracy, such as they be, Remember last year, trying these different approaches. Remember so, last year in New Hampshire and Vermont, they tried to, the, the governors were working on kind of a bi-state solution, a, a, a fund between the two states. And that so, was a way to spread out the cost. And those are two Republican governors. And again, you know, going back to the point I made earlier, Democrats may have had the high ground on the issue, but it's certainly been, the Republicans have really been leading the fight on on how to implement and, and, and being creative in that space. So it's been interesting to watch. Switching to labor policy, one of your favorite agencies, the EEOC. Yeah, so there's just some, some discussion this week. The, the joint employer rule is primed to kind of pop out of, of the process here, and we are, uh, we are waiting to see it emerge. It has not emerged yet, uh, but... It should be any day now. And one more thing on the federal front, the uh, PRO Act that we've talked about exhaustively at this point now, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, it passed the U.S. House. Uh, This was totally expected. It is DOA in the Senate. This was uh, put forward by uh, labor basically to get everyone in the record on their wish list heading into the uh, 2020 cycle. All the dim presidential primary candidates basically endorse this. You know, if you want to see what the labor community is going to look for policymakers to tackle in the future, you need not look much farther than than the items included in this wish list. Um, In New York City, uh, there's some activity going on up there around just cause and, and how you can fire workers. What's going on up in New York? We're not fireworkers, more appropriately. We're not fireworkers. This was uh, a local ordinance that was un- under consideration earlier, I want to say like six months ago, but earlier in 2019. It is back. Essentially, this is a component of a collective bargaining agreement. You can't fire people. You have to essentially go to arbitration. I mean, this is what would, you know, you can't fire a worker in a union workplace. You've got to kind of work with the union. You know, that essentially that is what we're setting up here via uh, an ordinance via law in New York City, and it's uh, it's crazy. Well, it's interesting. I read an article uh, earlier this week. I think it was this week. It was talking about the De Blasio administration, and you know he was already had made a, a plenty of missteps, and um, and his presidential you know foray was just the, the last gasp. And he's essentially out of gas in New York City in, in terms of as, as a political force. And we're seeing a lot of these issues kind of germinating out of the council. They're not mayoral-driven initiatives. Right. They're council-driven initiatives. And council just said, you know, with de Blasio, you're not even part of the process anymore. Just go play with your toys and your sandbox and let us run this city. He, his mayoral power base is just all but evaporated. Just yeah, and I think the bill sponsor, don't quote me on this, um, but I think the bill sponsor is Brad Landers, the same guy that has run a lot of this stuff, including the joint employer bill, which ended up not passing, but he is a uh, fierce opponent of the industry, and he is running for higher office there, I think like a a local kind of prosecutor position. I don't think he's a public advocate, but uh, bottom line is he's he's looking for opportunities to continue to elevate his profile, and uh, this is just another one. Franklin, moving out to Washington State, it it appears that there's legislation, Appear there is legislation moving that could really open up the doors for some private right of action for the the trial bar, uh, and really have an opening for some unions uh, in terms of private right of action where people can sue or, or, or sue take legal action on behalf of the state 
for workplace violations. This, this is pretty big time stuff that I don't know is quite high enough on people's radar screen. Do you want to tell us what's going on in Washington? Yeah, you said it. Listen, when the trial bar has a piece of model legislation they want to push, you need to pay attention. That's, that's the bottom line here. And so this creates essentially a private right to action for workplace and employment law. It's unclear. We're going to have someone on later, a lawyer, to walk us through exactly what this means. But Later you mean in another pod. In another podcast. Sure. But it, it seems to me like it, it allows for individuals or groups, i.e. unions or labor advocates, to step in and file complaints, not unlike you would file an unfair labor practice complaint with the National Labor Relations Board as essentially a third party on behalf of the state against employers. This would open up just this would put a huge tool in the toolbox of union corporate campaigns, not to mention, you know, trial lawyers are going out looking for settlements. So this is a major issue. And um, this is the type of thing that can be exported quickly to other states. And so it's critically important that this is addressed and the employer community comes together and kind of uh, handles this because it could pop up elsewhere. Franklin, switching to packaging, there are a number of uh, pieces of legislation on the move in, in, in Illinois and New Jersey, and then a preemption kind of intervention in South Dakota. What's going on in the packaging space? Yeah, there's uh, in, in Illinois, we're looking at a 10 cent fee in single use plastics or paper or compostable bags. So that's across the board. That is wow. Wow. I mean, this this conversation has gone from zero to 100 so quickly. But uh, the city of Chicago already has a, a law in the books, and that would be exempted. I think we're going to see more and more jurisdictions get in this game. I mean, if you just Google single-use plastics any week, you will have 14 cities that are looking at stuff. It is everywhere now. New Jersey, this thing got to the one-yard or two-yard line in 2019, didn't make it over the finish line. It is being picked back up. I expect it will pop out of the process here in the next months. What it looks like remains to be seen. But where things stand right now is they're looking to ban most bags. That could really dis- The New Jersey one could really disrupt a lot of operation, uh, operational procedures in a lot of, our, uh, a lot of the big companies that are leveraging carryout and delivery. Yeah, I mean, we're talking bags, we're talking foam, we're talking straws, basically an outright ban, which means essentially you have to move over to compostable. That's what we're talking about. Or reusable, right? So this is similar to the mandate that was under discussion and debate in California, but really didn't go anywhere. It didn't even, I don't even think it got heard in committee. If it did, it was like one committee. But uh, New Jersey seems to be a little more serious about it than California was. This would probably set another high watermark on this issue. And we need to watch it and pay attention and be engaged. And, and the sm- last was South Dakota. Yeah. South Dakota, so... Um, the restaurant-heavy state of South Dakota. Always a harbinger of the industry. Yeah, and they, they want to preempt munis from uh, doing anything on this issue. So they want to they want to preempt all bans and straws. Something that they tried in Florida places. unsuccessfully. But the, the yeah. bill in South Dakota has already passed the state Senate, and it's kind of starting its process in the House, which Crystal Ball would say probably doesn't have that much of a problem in the House either. I don't but think it's so, going to be much of an issue. Yeah. So, I mean, you know... We'll continue this dynamic wherein the flyover states, we will have preemptions and no rules in the books. It'll be kind of wild, wild west scenario. And then on the coast and up in the Great Lakes there, we will have these crazy requirements in every city we turn to. All right. Well, that's the scorecard for this week. Another busy week. And uh, we'll do it again next time. Well, another week, another pod. 
And uh, another Coley victory, my friends. Yeah, Super Bowl didn't turn out too well it for did us, not Carson. Do so well, no, no, our predictions were not correct. Not correct, but uh, the Chiefs won. What was your what was your favorite uh, Super Bowl act? I like two. I, I like the uh, the Ellen DeGeneres kind of life before Alexa um, as a as a as a house who has you know screaming kids who who really have you know leaned fully into Alexa. Uh, and then I thought the Tom Brady one was pretty slick too. I liked the Tom Brady one, and I liked uh, the Bill Murray Groundhog Day one. That was Don't kind drive of funny. Angry. That was awesome. And then the uh, Hyundai, the Boston one. Yeah, that was good. That was good. South Park and cars. That's a good one. Coley, there were a couple other political commercials that uh, caught our eye as well. There were some big-time political ads, some costly ads from uh, the two billionaires in the race, President Trump and Mike Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg's was was interesting. It was just basically a dump Trump, I think, was the hashtag at the end. It's kind of predictable attack ad. The Trump ad was interesting. It was a criminal justice reform ad. I, I think I was expecting Trump to haymaker somebody. Just right, cause. but it, it was during the Super Bowl, and I get it's a topic that the NFL has kind of, you know... It's true, and it was a bipartisan win for the Trump administration. It was a bipartisan piece of, even though that actual person I don't think was necessarily tied to it, but there was, there's a, there was legislation that was approved in a bipartisan fashion, pushed by the White House. So, you know, um, it's interesting that that's what he chose to highlight during the Super Bowl or his campaign chose to highlight during the Super Bowl. So anyway, it's clearly election season. Yeah, if we you- have campaign ads dueling over the Super Bowl. But there weren't message ads like-, like there were when Trump first came became president. There weren't these you know, Budweiser immigration ads and... Yeah, Airbnb, Airbnb and 84 Lumber ads, the first... Super Bowl after Trump was elected, there was a lot of social activism ads and kind of a rebuff of Trump's policies. And we didn't have a lot of that. We've had some social activism type ads over the past couple of years. There wasn't a whole lot of that. It was all light comedic stuff, minus the two political ads. Yeah, I mean, the most Interesting. overtly maybe political thing was J-Lo and the, and the Puerto Rican flag there, you know, front and center at the, the halftime show. Carson had to close it out with the halftime show. His favorite part of the game. Absolutely. All right, I'll talk to you next week.